Hello and welcome to the Body Knows podcast. The show that's all about exploring the wisdom of the body through the experiences, teaching and lives of our guests. We are your hosts, Marcela Enriquez Wakeham and my husband, Matt Wakeham. And we're so happy to have you here with us today. This is the last episode in the first season of the Body Knows podcast. Thanks to all of you who have listened throughout the series of this mind-body-led conversation. To those of you whom we have met and spoken with, and who have also reached out and shared personal stories and insights inspired by what you have heard. This was always our purpose in creating the show and makes all the work worthwhile. Our final guest is Bruce Parry, English documentarian, indigenous rights advocate, author, explorer and former Royal Marine Commando officer. His documentary series of the BBC, Tribe, Amazon and Arctic, have shown Bruce exploring extreme environments, living with remote indigenous people and highlighting many of the issues of the environmental front line. What started out as a simple desire for adventure for him, developing to a profound love for humanity and nature, and the kind of deeply felt somatic response that comes with having experienced firsthand what our way of life is doing into the world. He is best known for his time spent living with indigenous peoples and for bringing awareness of the shamanic use of psychedelic plant medicine to the mainstream, as well as his investigations into globalization and climate change. Bruce's last film, To Why, A Voice from the Forest, is about how humankind has shifted its connection to nature with devastating results and suggests how we might return to the egalitarian structures that humanity lived in for 95% of our time on the planet before the Neolithic Agricultural Revolution. This is a deep and wide-ranging conversation taking in the roles of awareness practices, psychedelics and shadow work, the nature of a spirit and consciousness via the lenses of the felt sense, indigenous people, meditative awareness and scientific study, and the possible next stage of human evolution through egalitarian revolution. We dive too into his vision for life informed by ancestral wisdom through an innate heart-led connection to the natural order, the people he has met who embody this, and the importance of this too in order to find something bigger than ourselves. Bruce outlines what the new cultural narratives and tools could be in order for us to live this truly grounded and egalitarian life beyond our Western individualistic patriarchal power structures so that we might discover what it truly means to be fully ourselves. It was our pleasure and honor to speak with Bruce and bring you this illuminated conversation as it has been with each and every one of our guests over the past months. As ever, if this last episode speaks to you, we ask that you leave a review on Apple Podcast and to subscribe and share to your socials. If there is one person you believe will benefit from the show, please forward it to them. Supporting us in this way will help spread our message and the body's innate wisdom and ability to heal. Please continue to do so in our absence and until we return with more Body Knows podcast later in this year. You can find Bruce online via his site, bruceparry.com, where you can find out more about his filmmaking, discover his talks and writings on psychedelics, ecology and power and revolution, as well as links to further interviews with him. There's also an extensive dedicated site for his documentary To Why, with further resources, study materials and outtakes at Earth. Bruce's social links are 
Bruce Parry Tribe, all one word, on Instagram, and he is simply Bruce Parry on YouTube, where, among a number of other extracts from his extensive travels, you can find the full-length to wide documentary. There is no somatic body knows practice at the end of this conversation, but instead the entire episode serves as a lift understanding of the human condition and an approach to it. However, we have some special related materials to share on our socials later in the month that give further direct experiential insights into everything Bruce has to say. Please follow us there if you don't already do so. On Instagram, the body knows underscore podcast and on Facebook, the body knows podcast. You can listen to our conversation with Bruce after the following sponsor message. We are proudly sponsored by Made by Coopers, a modern apothecary crafting natural and organic products for your skin and soul. Founders Claire and Darren Cooper started the brand after they went on a mission to heal their own sleep disorders and anxiety problems. It was yoga, breathwork, meditation and aromatherapy that helped them and led them to a three-month journey of discovery in India where they had the idea to start a wellness brand that boosts, balance and supports emotional well-being and helps with sleep, vitality and more. All their products are vegan certified and free from nasties, so there is no parabens, synthetic colors, fragrances, mineral oils or SLSs, and the skincare line is derived from plants with the majority of the ingredients being raw and food grade. They are cruelty-free and they use no filling or bulking agents, keeping the formula concentrated for results. We love their products and we're sure you will too. Head on over to the shop at madebycoopers.com and use the discount code BODY20 at checkout for a 20% discount off all products. That's B-O-D-Y-2-0. Thank you, Bruce, to have had this interview with the Body Knows podcast. I'm so, so excited about this conversation because it really touches so much about also my path as, um, uh, as a Mexican, as an indigenous background, and I work with, uh, with cacao plant medicine. It's not as strong as the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> but as well as I invite and work with the spirits. And for me, uh, your path, it really talks a lot. I mean, a lot to my body, to my psyche, to my spirit. Uh, and I'm so looking forward for this conversation. Yeah, to- well, me too. <laughs> Very grateful to have you here, Bruce. Uh, as an Englishman of my generation, you've been... Uh, an influence and uh, and a presence in, in my life as well, you know, having been part of a psychedelic generation as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful to be able to speak to you and grateful for all of you given us in, in culture as well. So, yeah, it's well, good to speak to you. Yeah, thanks, guys. That's a really nice intro. Let's hope I can live up to it to some <laughs> degree, eh? <laughs> Don't let you down. Oh, no, no, at all. You can't. Impossible. <laughs> uh, right, so I'm going to start with the first question. You have lived a very adventurous life, traveling and leading expeditions to some of the most remote regions, living with indigenous people, 
around the whole world. Uh, what was your initial motivation to visit these remote uh, communities to document and try to understand their lives and customs directly and becoming part of the tribe? Well, that takes me back. You know, if I'm honest, my journey has been a big one insofar as I've gone through huge shifts myself. And, and so if I want to answer that question honestly, my true original inspiration um, for, for travel wasn't what it is now. It was back then, it was more egoic, it was adventure, it was going to places no one's ever been, meet people no one's ever met, climb mountains. It was that whole sort of adventure, try and stick out in a crowd because I've done something no one else has done, kind of ego trip, if I'm honest. And also adventure, you know, like having a new experience every day, turn the corner, see something new, feel something new, have a new experience. It was, I was, I was on the run. I was on the run. I had no idea how to sit still back then. I was like wanting and needing constant stimulation because I truly believed that was that was the best way to live life. Um, yeah, but there's many so, ways, right, to to do that. Why tribes? What was the original idea? I'm going to visit the most further corners and leave, embody that. What happened was. Um, I, as I said, I started out as an adventurer. Um, and when you go to the most remote places in the world, that's where you come across indigenous mm -hmm. people. They weren't initially my, my um, focus. But, but as I started traveling more, I mean, I, I used to lead these expeditions out in Asia, science and conservation expeditions. And we were often in the middle of the jungles of Borneo and Sumatra and places. So this is before this, this is before, this is before TV. Yeah. yeah. So I was already doing that sort of thing a fair bit. I was already very au fait with being in the forest and and sort of and sort of having a sort of expedition lifestyle. Um, and and then I got picked up by television to do that. And then in the course of my travels, I would come across tribal people including some of the travels then that I did for television. And that, that all came together, whereby then the TV, the BBC actually approached me and said, would I like to do a program about tribal people? Um, because I was already an adventurer who was kind of, I guess, well-known or slightly known. So it was their inspiration, but of course, that's what I'm saying. My journey has been such a long uh, and sort of, there's been such a lot of growth in it that, uh, yeah, originally it, that wasn't my drive. Uh, but what happened was as soon as I then had the opportunity to go and do this more, then, of course, everything started changing for me because I realized what an extraordinary privilege, but also responsibility mm. is to go and, and visit and meet people. And, you know, and I was terrified because I was not an anthropologist. I hadn't studied formally at university, any of these things. And I was just literally an sort of an ex-marine adventurer, now going to go and live with tribal people. And how was I going to do that? You know, everything that I said, I was going to be talking to millions of people who had, many of them had much more knowledge than me. So what was going to be my way of presenting? What was going to be my way of, of, of engaging with these people? And I guess luckily I'd had enough life experience and enough. Uh, changes in my life already that I realized 
that uh, I needed to just go and listen. I just needed to sit down and listen. That was it. You know, I already re- I'd already had a few occasions in my life where I had realized that my preconceptions were of life, which I was holding quite strongly, had been turned upside down. And I thought, Crumbs, I don't want to be doing that on public TV. I better not say anything at all <laughs> and just go and listen to what they got to say. And that turned out to be the, the best possible approach. Segway so beautifully into what we wanted to ask you next. We just recently, you know, we, you agreed to do the interview and we're like, OK, we're cool. we actually haven't seen Tribe for a while. We'd watched Hawaii uh, quite recently, but um, so we got we got the box set and we started watching again from the beginning. And, you know, looking back at it now, us watching it, and it seems a bit echoing in what you're saying, it, it, but not in a conscious way, but it seems that you went to all these far-flung corners of the earth and far-flung corners of, inside of yourself as well to heal something deeply rooted in your own being. How did this experience deepen your, you know, this experience of being with these people? Deep, how did it deepen your connection with nature, your essential self, uh, and with your, you know, with, with your fellow humans? Mm. Well, manifoldly and continuously, (laughs) every trip was a new lesson. And I came from a pretty gross, and I say that gross in a sort of like heavy and sort of like rough type of person. I hadn't done much personal work at all when Mm. I started out. I mean, I like to think I was a nice guy, but I was still like an ex-Marine kind of roughy, toughy sort of jack the lad kind and then suddenly i'm thrust with all these people and yeah i i because i was taking this approach of listening rather than thinking i knew anything i was suddenly seeing the world through these other people's eyes and and that was inviting me to you know to to see how it is that they see the world and that in in turn allows you to reflect on how you see the world. And very often you realize that some of the things that you thought were quite clear and obvious were actually not the case at all. So I was already opening up just intellectually and experientially from the very first moment. But then of course, on top of that, I was having um, some deep and profound experiences like the plant medicines, like some rites of passage um, trips and what have you, that, that took that to the next level, where I was really, really having to engage and uh, look deep inside myself and question. And it, was, it was actually the first tribe of all, the first program we ever made, where I went to Gabon to do a boga. With the Babongo. Yeah, with the Babongo people. and. Um, and we were, and that was a last minute change. I remember, because normally I do all sorts of research beforehand. And I remember we were only told like with a week's notice that we were going to change because this other place we were going to go to fell down. So I remember sitting on the plane, reading through the notes and reading about this thing that they do called Iboga. And, and it said, sometimes people, you know, have real problems with it if you have a problem with your heart and stuff. And I remember thinking, if only I'd read this two days ago, I could have checked out whether my heart had a, an anomaly or not. And so I was thrust in. But that particular, that particular medicine journey was sort of set the scene, I guess, for the whole of the rest of the tribe series. I mean, it just it 
it turned me inside out and and it was such a profound and beautiful healing and it and it allowed me to understand that there, there's a completely different way of experiencing and perceiving the world and that these tribal people are holding on to something that we just can't actually fully understand unless you're really engaging with them in that sort of way and so that that was so humbling that it just allowed for that sort of pace to be the you know it just allowed it allowed it allowed for me to be much more receptive I guess it was just such a beautiful way to start um, wow that episode struck me in a couple of ways and, and I heard recently you speaking in another interview which is about how it was the first one and how you hadn't expected it which is quite amazing you could look at that in some ways that's you know I'm sure the people the the communities would look at that the spirit moved that way for you for that to be your first experience that's one way of um, interpreting it it was your initiation to go on the whole journey and it's but it's what what amazed me about that outside of outside of the aboga and the psychedelic experience is that these people a whole whole community devote themselves to you mm. in that and that's um, and, that, and that strikes me again and again, you know, how many mothers and fathers you have all over the world now and how, how much love you're given. I, I was doing the editing for Tawai and uh, the wonderful editor, Veronique, who was looking through some of the rushes. She hadn't she didn't know any of my tribe stuff. And and that was what she said at the end of like looking through it. She goes, you are the most blessed person on the planet. I mean, maybe that's not quite true no doubt <laughs> presidents and popes and stuff who've been blessed much more but like but you know that was what she said she goes you you the blessings that you've received and you just mm. have to look at that but bongo ceremony and the amount of times the whole community is around and the, the way they bless is through their breath and so they're all like like huffing and breathing over me mm. with, with this sort of the breath of life and you'll see that the breath is a blessing all around the world you know in polynesia how you exchange in and out of people's uh, noses and mouths as you as you touch foreheads and all of you know these things are, are very similar when you really get down to the basics in so many places around the world that's a, an immense gift but of course you can never you can never let go of it and so therefore it's also a responsibility if I had just gone around the world being an adventurer climbing mountains it would have been one thing but the fact that I went around the world meeting people who are very often struggling as a result of the way that we're living our lives yeah how can and be blessed by these people and these people bring you into their homes and give you like everything they have and you realize these other ways of living and how, how humans can live together and and what we're doing with our sort of hungry ghosts constant consumption and you're like oh my god i, I have such a deep and profound responsibility to share this yeah that's that's the call of your spirit that's that you call we call it the call of the spirit your mission your service a deep one huh? <laughs> yes. so thanks to this tribe uh program you became an early pioneer for the current psychedelic renaissance but the bbc left your experience of ritual and deep connections through plant medicine a little bit ambiguous I would like to ask you personally, which ritualization, perhaps you already say it, but made the biggest impression when nature really talked to you and deepened your connection with your body? Um, well, it's funny, 
before I answer that directly, it's funny you say it's ambiguous. Yeah, people, you know, the BBC had to edit it in a certain way. But, They're um, the BBC. Well, it's the BBC. And, like, I, and in some ways, it was amazing what I was able to do, because not only was it's understandable that I can go and do a ritual with a group of people who, mm. for whom that is their culture. But also they allowed me to go, for example, and to a sort of like a Western ayahuasca clinic in Iquitos and, and do it there, which is which isn't like an, uh, with a tribe in the middle of nowhere. This yeah. is with a bunch of tourists who come to do it. And so just those sorts of things were like me giving a nod to, yeah, I want to do this because this was beneficial for me. I mean, they didn't allow me to say all the things I they edited out a lot of what I said. But it didn't matter because the fact is that some of it got through. Um, and it was 15 years ago. It was a very different perspective yeah. on what psychedelics are than, than it is now. Psychedelics were, just weren't in the culture at all, really, at the time, let alone plant medicines. I, I definitely have met many, many people who said the first time they came across anything like that was from the shows. And um, I mean, clearly there's been plenty who knew beforehand, but it was, it was, a, it was one of the steps into the mainstream. Um, which also has a responsibility too, of course, because you know we all know that there's problems with some of the cultivation of the plants and the, and the and the sort of the rise of the neo shaman and all of these things and mm. sort of you know that's a whole endless and other topic. But that's also something that I've had to answer to, and I feel I have my answers for that. But even so, it's um, it, none of these things are simple. Uh, this is these are incredibly complex um, medicines that need to be held well and of course I had the privilege of of like being held by people who've been doing it forever and um, and that's not always the case if you're watching me on tv and wanted to replicate that you'll probably go to a center and that was a lot harder yeah but to answer your question the one that affected me the most I mean like I'm let me think well probably not one of the tv ones if I'm honest you know, because it's there is a different vibe when you've got a camera in your face. I mean, I try to ignore it, but um, I've, for example, I've drunk ayahuasca probably more than I've done any of the other things. I mean, I've done iboga again, and I've done yopo again, and 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 and, med and, and mushrooms many times, um, and other forms of psychedelia as well, which started out recreationally, but I take now more ritualistically. But I think that the, the probably the biggest shifts I've had are through the ritual use of ayahuasca. Um, mm. And uh, there was a particular shaman who I used to go and visit uh, in Colombia, who I liked very much. Uh, in fact, we, we, we were going to include a scene of that in the film to why, and we went and filmed it, but we ended up taking it out. But you can see that if, if your viewers were interested, it's on the Earth website. There's a, section called next and under that you can see ayahuasca and it's a really beautiful 15 minute uh, shoot that we did and in that I tried to because we brought along a number of different people I tried to do a, a little story of of what it might be like and what might um, you know because we have these the, this, this sort of doctor there and some other people there so it's like a nice little uh, nice little film that we put together which I quite like but I think probably the, the things that have, have brought me into my body most were there with him, Kahujuli in Colombia. I also went to a place called the Temple of the Way of Light, which is the reason I went to it. I, I wouldn't normally go to a place that's like so visited. Hmm. Uh, 
uh, uh, having been very privileged and I can generally find more remote and bespoke places, but I was having so many people saying to me, Bruce, I've seen you on the TV, the strangers emailing me and what have you saying, can you give me some advice? And that became very hard because like, I don't know you, the whole set and setting is, is so important to get right. Yeah. these things are illegal I mean there's a whole bunch but at the same time not wanting to stifle someone's true desire to explore because I believe do believe in the healing property so I, I ended up going to this place that I knew could receive many many people because it's like almost like a hospital they have so many people going through and I must admit I had a really powerful journey there and that was one of the times that I probably we did like seven sessions in nine days or something I mean it's pretty intense wow and um and i thought the th- i thought the three days on the dmt with the babongo <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was quite cool it must be said uh but the uh but there i had a very strong body um reconnection uh really strong where i almost for the first time since perhaps being an infant felt that i was fully in my body like there was no separation and I've had moments of that but like for some reason in that time it was like wow and like and then and then in that moment everything you put in you have so much more care and attention towards because it's like this is the temple and I am it and you know and sadly it only lasted a month or so but that was a really big one yeah I can I really can really relate to that just that's the simplicity of connection after to the to the body after ayahuasca how how, how clear and direct it seems that, that there is that separation that i think we particularly as westerners have between yeah psyche and soma how that dissolves i remember talking to the um, maestros at the end they have or back then at least they had mostly female um shaman administering and and I was curious because uh, they've obviously seen many, many people. It's like a sausage factory almost, the people coming through the whole time. And I remember saying to them, like, if, could, you, could you tell me what you think is the biggest ailment that you've seen from people coming from the rich nations? And, all, and they were like six of them all sitting on a fence. And, and all together, they all said, like, almost in one voice, it's like, you're all stuck in your heads. Yeah. <laughs> there you have it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Grandmother Ayahuasca is such a beautiful, loving, healing energy plant. I haven't done much, uh, but that's, if I say something that I want, my favorite is that one, also Ayahuasca. Very powerful. And then I guess you've had direct contact. You've seen firsthand what our way of life is doing to the world. And so, like, with your ne- after tried, like, you know, your next film, which interestingly, I believe, was rejected by the BBC. Um, yeah, was, is your documentary uh, to why, which focuses on Penan people of Borneo, who were the, the last tribe that you visited on tribe, and who were the la- one of the last remaining nomadic indigenous people on the planet. What is it that that makes the Penan people so special um well lots <laughs> but uh just to go back so yeah i i lived with all of these indigenous people around the world and of course learned so much from each of them and then the Penan was the last group that i visited 
uh, and then something I realized was completely different about them. And I'll answer the, as to exactly what that was mm. in a second. But it really shocked, shook me and like, wow, I thought I'd seen everything and been everywhere and done every, I had an answer to everyone. And then here's this group of people, it's like, oh my God, this is, this is like, I need to rethink everything. So there was a really big thing for me, but they were the last group. And then, and then I went and did two other series for the BBC before I did my uh, film to why. I went, I went down the Amazon for eight months and then I went around the Arctic and each one of those also influenced me um, heavily before I ended up making my, leaving the BBC to make my own documentary. Because my trip down the Amazon was mostly came about because so many people watching us go to visit tribes and I would, and for people who haven't necessarily traveled much and get most of their information from the media, you could be forgiven for thinking that these were like remote groups of people in the middle of nowhere. And we were like the first, like, you know, with this sort of like new influence that they were having and people were like, why are you going there? What you, you, you shouldn't be doing that. It's like the, you're, you're changing them, you're influencing them. And of course, for us who knew the story because we had traveled there, we realized that actually that yes, it's true. And we have to be very careful for the fact that we are having an impact on their lives, but that impact is nothing compared to what's what's really happening, which is the missionaries, the miners, the loggers, and, and essentially us, our way of life is impacting yeah. them much more than, than, than me, perhaps. It's so, we were so impacted watching it again by the missionaries. I mean, the loggers is one, you know, that's just heartrending as well, but yeah. just seeing that i mean i think that really impacted you you as well marcel obviously as a, oh, as a mexican yeah we've been take over brutally by them yeah 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 it was just another extension of our sort of yeah colonialism i guess um and then i did a trip around the arctic which was all looking at climate change and how everything was interconnected and that what happens here is going to happen there and it's going to affect us all in the long run and so those two other elements had basically made it very clear to me that we needed to change the way we live and we needed to, to, to put these messages out there. Because even though the Amazon made it pretty clear, I thought that we were the problem by mm. saying like, okay, here's all this wood getting destroyed. I'm gonna go and live with the loggers and they're peasants. <laughs> they're not making any money. So who, where's the problem? You know, and then, but we didn't actually say directly, you are back home because no one wants to hear that. But we thought it was we thought it was obvious, but actually the penny hadn't really dropped, and so I was like, "We, we it, more needs to be said." So I ended up leaving because the BBC wanted me to go off and do other stuff, and I'm like, "Sorry, you've just opened my eyes to this. Nothing, there's nothing on the planet that's bigger than these subjects, and I can't mm -hmm. just now go off and do some geopolitics in China. It's like, no, this is this is bigger." So I, I, I ended up deciding to make Tawai, and the reason that I chose the Penan was because basically what I learned from my time with them was that, that actually before agriculture, it, it's now believed that for 95% of our time on the planet, we lived very differently to almost everyone, how everyone's living. Mm. And the main reason for that is that we were egalitarian. We had no chiefs or leaders. We lived as equals. And when you live with a group of people who have no competition and they're living as equals you understand that actually so many of the drives that we have at the moment for consumption for, for our woundings and all the rest of it they dissipate 
when you have when you're living as a group of equals and and so initially i thought well that's just an impossible thing there's no way that we can ever return to that why would i even bother trying to explore it but i i held on to the feeling because it was there was so many aspects to it that just felt so profound to me that people weren't aware of you know we've been told we grow up thinking that competition is natural aggression is natural we've always been patriarchal we've got all of this stuff and then you realize none of that's true we need strong government to control ourselves and we'll rip each other apart and like here's a group of people who are anarchists i.e no leader in the true yeah. sense of anarchy and yeah. you can understand why it means what it means to dominate a culture because it's a threat to a dominator culture and, and, and dominate a culture sees everything as either winning or losing. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah, here are, here are some of the, here are the most peaceful, peaceful people on the planet. And basically every single sort of narrative that we have in our society is turned upside down by my experience of living with these people. And I was like, I can, no one knows this. No one knows, like the anthropologists in the, are beginning to accept it, but like, this is real. And so I felt I, I have to share this information in the world and, and then go, went into a deep dive into to that. But then alongside that, if you look at the film, you realize that that's not the biggest part of the film. The biggest part of the film is probably like the more spiritual side, it's a spiritual journey. Because in that, I also learned with the Penan was that, again, this is all sort of, relating to the shift that happened when we became agriculturalists is that uh, here are hunter-gatherers, nomadic hunter-gatherers. And it sort of dawned on me that hunting and gathering is a form of meditation. And here, here was, was us, all of us, where we had a daily meditative practice. And what does that do to us when you have a daily meditative practice? Well, anyone you know, who's been on a Vipassana or who's been on a retreat for a period of time, you know the difference between when you go in and when you come out. It's yeah. profound. You know, one of the things we always say is like, I feel more connected. I feel more in my body. I feel more. All of these things can arise when we have a daily meditative practice. And here's a group of people that had that. Because, you know, to catch the monkey, you've got to be in your body. You've got to be in your senses. You've got to be alert in that moment to be able to do it. Likewise to forage. You can't just, it's not just putting plants in a row with a pair of headphones on or driving a track. It's like, you've got to be aware where things are as you're going along. You've got to be in your body and senses and watching and taking note. You're not whistling and looking at your dog run over the hill. And, and also yeah. a deep gratitude of to be that nature provides, that gratitude that therefore I'm not going to destroy you because I'm going to destroy myself. So true. So true. And that's why we, in a way, the word, the word to why, which is the name of the film, is used three times uh, in, in the film. I mean, it's used obviously many more times when we were there, but we captured three to use in the film. And one of them has exactly that. It's like my friend uh, Jeffrey says, I feel to why for the forest, because when I'm there, uh, especially in the fruiting season, it's like my mother holding me to her breast. I know that I can be nourished. I know that I can be fed. I know that I'm safe here. And that's one of the feelings that they have, which they use this word to why for. Mm. I love that. I love that. There's something so deep in the difference between, the, the, the diametric difference between that and post-Neolithic revolution, isn't there? Because once we believe we have to control nature for it to provide to us, the onus is completely on us. And that's like a developmental trauma, like the mother can't support us. 
And so we're living in fear all the time. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think when you really pick it away, that, that to me is the moment where so many things started shifting in, in, in such a way. I mean, obviously, there are so many blessings that have come from this period that we've been in now. Like, we, you know, the, the, this sort of period of separation, if you will, and this period of left hemisphere and this period of like of technology and, and creation has also brought us blessings, but it's also come at a massive cost. And that cost is our mental health, our physical health, warfare and, and famine. And, you know, those things weren't around beforehand. They are the cost of the way that we're living now. And so, you know, we have to weigh up what, what it is that we want to do going forwards. But I think it's really important to know how humans can be and how humans can exist together. And that was what I was trying to, to bring out. But, but what people obviously think when I start saying that, it's like, well, what are you trying to say, Bruce, that we need to go and be hunter-gatherers again? And I'm like, no, 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 that's not the point. And what I, what I, I mean, that would be great, but there's just not enough space. Um, and some of the technologies we've created are good, you know, permaculture is great and other things like it. But we have to mix that with this other wisdom that we have about connection and, and upbringing and, and spirit and relation to each other and forest and all this sort of stuff that we have to sort of mix mix back in yeah i mean like the, this journey that i've been on with this this has had so many problems in my own thinking of like what why would why am i trying to why am i trying to um share this it feels so distant and far away and complex there's so many other smaller things I could do rather than this sort of sea change of like, we need to go back to some egalitarian way of living. But the more I think about it, the more I think that actually so many of our problems are as a result of all of these factors. Uh, well, and they all need to be... Remembered. We're swimming in the water of the patriarchy. So we're like fish. We're yeah. so in the... I've heard you say before, just like every philosophical viewpoint that we have upon life and culture is post the neolithic revolution so that it's always looking at it from the prism of power yeah absolutely you know to the experience of living with a truly egalitarian society is unbelievable and it affected me so deeply and it's weird because i've taken a friend to go and visit the same group and i don't think it affected her in the same way and that made me think god am i mad and then i was like no no no, because it's actually really subtle yeah but it's really real too and i think that because i'd had the privilege of living with so many other groups when i came to the panan it became really clear to me oh there's something very different going on here if i if they were the first group that i met i might not have noticed it because they they don't look that different you know, we're so attuned to the eyes being the major thing that we try and figure stuff out with. It's like they're wearing T-shirts, they're smoking cigarettes, they're not, they don't look very different. But actually what it was, was their, their way of being that was so profoundly different. And, and, and they basically were existing without competition. And, and again, this isn't in the film so much, but one thing I really, if you're interested in this, that I... I I recommend going to look at another one of the outtakes. We talked about the ayahuasca outtake. There's another outtake that was called Benjeli. It's in the same place on the tawai.earth mm-hmm. website. And there you see the different tools are in the toolkit that these groups use to maintain balance. And the, and the most powerful and the biggest one by far is observing 
the women. And I say this, Matt, because you talked about patriarchy, but you know, you're right. We've been swimming in patriarchy and power and competition and aggression for so long that we have no clue what, what it could be like if we'd lived in a different way. And when you go and live with a group of people like the Benjeli, it's less visible with the Panat, but it's there too. But let's say the Benjeli. You're like, oh my God, this is what a fully empowered group of women are like when they are being themselves, when they're not trying to, you know, in our society, in order to, to gain power, you've got to sort of step over and, and join in with where the power is. And that might not necessarily be what's naturally coming out. I mean, it's not for me to say where we're at and, and what what's feels right for each individual. But all I can say is that when you meet the collective of the women in the Benjeli, they're not trying to be like the men. They are being themselves. And their quality of power that they have being themselves is as powerful, or maybe even I would think more powerful than what the men have. And their play between the men and the women is so phenomenal and is at the heart of how they maintain balance within their society. But it's not the women trying to compete or fight or outdo the men using the, those tactics that the men might have used. It's a very, very different thing. They're using sexuality and play and song and dance and a whole bunch of stuff that's, you know, it's not for me to label, but that's what they seem to be doing. And I know that that's a very diff difficult story to put into the world today when we have views of binary sex and gender are, are, are not very um, well received in lots of places but regardless of that I, I think there's something in it that we, we, we can learn it's, it's like the, the big difference that they have is that they, they understand difference you know it's weird people say to me Bruce how can you say these people are equal when when they're different and I'm like because in their society equal isn't sameness no no not, not necessarily yeah no. equality is equality of power equality of value equality of position in society but not the same men and women they think are different and each individual is different and I don't know how that is brought into our society today I don't know but I I think that there's something in there to be to be looked at yeah to be explored you know gently yeah. perhaps i have a question that uh sometimes when i look into myself as as, as a woman that uh, i mean how how we are into power i feel that we like to share power and also to find myself that i am obviously connected with something that is the source of my energy so I would like to ask this, Bruce, from the wisdom of your body, how important is this connection with nature and each other uh, to find something bigger than ourselves? And especially what is that that we lost? And how can we find it? Wow. Can I sort of like include it in a continuation of where we were going? Yes, please. Um, in, a, in a way. Let me think. Um, you know, the question of what is nature, this connection to nature, it's like, you know, we are nature. And some people say, therefore, everything we do doesn't matter. It's also natural. And there's clearly there's something that's happening in the way that we're living our lives today that isn't being very um, 
harmonious towards the environment in which we yeah. are. There's a, you're either aligned, you're either in alignment or out of alignment. It feels to me that that's the, that's the case. And obviously a tribal group can have a much more ready observation of their impact on the surroundings because they're taking everything from their immediate environment. We take things from a long way away. So they have a narrative that tells them to behave in a certain way. And they also have a feeling. And I don't know if you remember in the film, we go and meet a group of people called the Piraha. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to meet them because I'd heard from this, this uh, missionary turned linguist, Daniel Everett, who wrote this book, um, that this group had this running commentary with the spirit realm. And he kind of didn't really go into it, but I'm like, well, I'm really curious to go and meet this group of people because it fits in with this story that I'm trying to tell in the film of like, yeah, what we what might have changed for us and how we might, if we're more in our bodies and more in our senses and more in the moment, how we might be able to experience the world differently. And here's a group of people, the Piraha, who live in the Amazon, who have no future or past tense, mm. allegedly, to their language. So they couldn't be abstracted out of the present, even if they wanted to, even if their voice in their head is talking like ours, is chattering the whole time. It's only ever using words that are related to the here and now. And so the, the, there's, there's something really curious about them. And when you pick away all sorts of aspects, which I haven't time for now, sadly, but there's so many things about them that related to this narrative that we were building in the film about the left and the right hemisphere and how the right is more related to the body and the heart and all of this sort of bigger picture stuff that we were looking at. But anyway, I wanted to go and meet this group of people called the Piraha and ask them, how is it you're receiving this information from this spirit realm that you have a running dialogue with? I mean, I've met lots of indigenous peoples who have a relationship with the spirit realm, but mostly they only have it through plant medicine or drumming or dancing or something. And here's a group that just have it by literally just walking into the forest. So I was like, here's a curious group. I wanna go and talk to them. And I remember talking to Tuagachi and saying, how do you receive this information? And I had genuinely had no idea what he was gonna say. And he said, I receive it in my heart. And then it becomes words in my head. Yeah. And so I think in some ways that answers your question a little bit. It's like, yeah, I feel that we all once upon a time had some sort of dialogue with the divine with nature with whatever that is and i don't know whether that's just a deep intuition that they're in touch with because they're truly in their bodies or whether it genuinely is the like interconnected consciousness of all that is talking to them but whatever it is when you when i asked him okay what's it saying it seemed that nearly always it was asking him to do things that were harmonious for the for their relationship with the forest. It's like, don't take the big trees, only take what you need. This sort of stuff was his, his dialogue. Yeah. Not coming as words, but coming as something in his felt heart, same words. It has so, to be felt, it has to be felt, the spirit. is. It, it cannot even be, uh, I don't know, sorry, perhaps it's my language, but when, when you say there is a narrative, always it takes me to the mind. Uh, it's, it's just a felt sense that the spirit is within you, that nature is you. We have a prayer that is earth my body, water my blood, air my breath and fire my spirit. And you say it and you say it every day. And every, every single atom and element is part of your body. Therefore, Beautiful. take care of it. Beautiful. 
Well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because the reason that I mentioned uh, narrative as well is because is because there's lots of there's lots of spiritual traditions in the world that mm. invite us to be present, but each of them often have a subtly different narrative about what that journey is for. Some yeah. would be be present in order for to leave this earthly realm, so you don't need to come back. You've had <laughs> enough of your time with Maya. Others will be, you know, you can be present and be a sniper incredibly you can be present to be a boxer you know what i mean yeah, yeah it doesn't necessarily always translate into the romantic that we have especially if we're wounded and we have and we have layers of conditioning that is interfering with that deep intuitive knowing mm-hmm. and of course you know who is it that you know there's been i can't the guy that shot um lena didn't he say that he was having voices in his head you know it's all of these things it's like how do we know when we got to the depth of the truth of the knowledge of what it is that should be guiding us it's very 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 hard and that's why I also like to say it's good to have a narrative alongside it just check in with the narrative every now and then is this is this telling me to go and shoot someone in the head does that (laughs) sound like a good narrative no the narrative is about harmony for all including the environment yeah. that's holding us and you know if 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 my deep feeling is in connection with that then i'm in the then i'm in the right direction if your narrative is the heart love love to the family with mm. it was so many families you have you know that whatever you're in the world you can land somewhere and you're going to be fed mm. you're so safe you're so blessed so that that deep feeling of love that's the narrative that that's the heart that's the feeling it brings up two things for me bruce um i mean i've spent a lot of time of meditation retreat and uh, in buddhist practice i've i've i was fortunate enough to find a a form of buddhism and i follow the um the thai forest tradition and there's a couple of things that you said the the tradition that i come out of was founded by uh, a a great thai meditation master called ajahn Chah, and one of the things that he says the only book worth reading is the heart and why i love their practice is it's very direct it's very simple it's very it's very body-based and also like something like you know yes you can you, you can put mindfulness to to destructive arts you can be very one-pointed but obviously in the buddha's teaching there's right mindfulness and this is yeah. very much not right mindfulness as you say like you know twai isn't just a film about connecting to our ancestors and the type of life they might have lived but it's very clearly a film about a reconnection to our bodies and to our senses inviting us to feel deeply once again, and in part, you know, in part, concentrating on on meditation. And this is, I've listened, you know, to a lot of interviews with you, and I, this is a part that I, I love. Your time with the sadhus isn't picked up on a lot, isn't? And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that aspect of the film, your time with them, and how meditation has been beneficial for your life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for that invitation. I, it's true. I, I'm not taken there that often, and I also know. I mean, I tried to make a film that was had as few red flags as I used to call them as possible that would put people off and trigger people to turn off. But it's weird that actually I realized since that actually just going to India and meeting the sadhus did turn some people off. You know, we had, we had the ayahuasca in the film as well for a while. And we ended up taking that out because that turned some people off. And I was just trying to make something that could go as, as, 
as far as possible into those reaches of people who wouldn't necessarily have normally listened to this sort of thing. Why turn people off the sadhus? I don't know because because of their own for their own reasons. Their preconceptions. Preconceptions and um, and uh, yeah, I had one friend who said to me, "I don't want to listen to the advice of someone who's not doing anything for society." I mean, that would be his own view. Um, so the, yeah, all of these, all, anywhere that you go into this area is complex, and um, and we ended up taking out a lot of of the India section, but there's still, as you see, a lot in there, and I loved it because ultimately, you know, meditation is less controversial than than plant medicines and everyone can do it and it's one of the it's one of the great tools that has been discovered you know it's one of the greatest tools that has been discovered for reconnecting and this reconnecting is what we need more than anything and it's definitely helped me in my life dramatically i mean learning uh, learning to meditate properly which yeah. which i only really got having done a retreat i mean i've done many tr- retreats now but I'd done an hour here and an hour there and a bit of mindfulness. And that like, basically I was like, okay, that's nice. Yeah. I feel a bit calmer, but I had no idea what meditation was about until I was like four days into a 10 day retreat or something. I was like, Oh my God, now I get it. That is the sweet spot. Four days yeah. in on a 10 day retreat. Yeah. <laughs> when the mind like, gives up. Yeah. It's like, okay, now I understand. This is the most extraordinary tool. Um, so I really wanted to include it because it's something that everyone can do. And also I love the chat of the, the sadhus. They're amazing. I found them very like, uh, I mean, as I said, I, I found the Thai forest tradition and what I love about it is it's a tradition that's been, that was specifically developed to connect with rural Thai people. And the Buddha was very, uh, I've heard it said the Buddha was very clever in the fact that he made his uh, Sangha, his, his followers, arms mendicants so they're they're um they're dependent on the people around them they could they haven't got any, they don't own anything so they have to go out and they have to ask for food and the only way they're going to get given food is if they're useful and so i found that like this type the teaching very direct very clear there's no esotericism with it there's no layer upon layer it's just about connection with the body and the present and the world around you but i found the the, the talk that the sadhus had in to why was incredibly straightforward. Yeah, they were. They spoke English, which is amazing, and so they were able to have. They were. We were able to have good conversation, and I wanted to keep it less into the heavy dharma and more mm. around what the benefits are for meditation, and sort of trying to find the link between them and the what's going on in the forest. And there was some areas where where it's a bit where it doesn't quite overlap. You know, where he sort of says, "Oh, the." the body and material is all nonsense it's all the mind and and that's why we had to have the bit at the end of the film where ian mcgilchrist the, who talks about the hemispheres mm. offers this idea of consciousness being in phases i don't know if you picked up on that it's yeah. like right at the end and the reason i included that was because otherwise you could be a bit confused that in the film you've got these sadhus saying oh it's not about matter it's only about spirit and then of course you've got science which says there's nothing to do with spirit it's all about matter and then you're left going well what's bruce trying to say here is he trying to say that it's not about matter it's all about you know are we how far down this line are we going with the sadhus and i liked what ian says because it basically offers offers a possibility for both you know if consciousness can be in phases like ice like like water can be in phases like be water 
of flowing water, it can be water vapor, it can be ice. It's the same thing, but it has different forms. And maybe consciousness could also be something similar, whereby it can be a physical form that we might think of as matter. It can be the ethereal form of spirit. It can be flowing in other ways. And, and that allows for the possibility that my sort of waking state now that I'm in, as well as my non-dual state, can both ex- coexist mm. it doesn't have to be one or the other it could actually be both um, which is non-dual yeah it's it's, it's yeah it's kind of is... dual non-dual it's both yeah. and like and so that's a, so you i end up getting a little bit into hot water with a lot of deep eastern thought which but ultimately obviously it all goes back to <laughs> we i don't know how far we want to go into this but like yeah as far as you would like to go bruce uh, well, no, I don't think I don't think it I don't think in the film we we make any points very heavily. We're just offering thoughts. Mm. I liked that thought at the end because it allowed for a softening of the hardcore sadhu and and it brought in the, the probably the indigenous. It kind of landed a little bit more with the indigenous at the end than it did yeah. perhaps with India or with science. And it felt to me that that was more. The central point which was okay here's a group of people that are connected to spirit but also fully embodied and active in this in, and they're not trying to leave it they're here and it's ancestors and future generations and it's all a very it's a very physical thing as well as a very a spiritual, spiritual one rather than it just being purely esoteric spiritual yeah. but I, th- I thought it was very important you in, you included uh, altered states of consciousness through meditative awareness um because i'm the same as you um i mean i i haven't had <laughs> i haven't had the same level of plant medicine experience but i've had mo- a fair share of psychedelic experience in my life um and the the deepest the states of connection i've had on retreat too um i would say in some ways surpass that uh, that that awareness, that oneness that you can you 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 can you gain in samadhi when when mm. there is no separation. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? They're all quite different. They're all different. I mean, you notice that I had a as I go into the to the Ganges, I had a, like a full dissolution of self for about six hours actually. And of course, I in that state, you don't care about cameras or anything, so I didn't bother talking about it. You're like everything's a cosmic joke. It's like nothing is that. <laughs> And so, you know, I didn't really give any profound pieces to camera at the time, but like, um, you know, there was a, I think that the, for me, the times that I've had a meditative dissolution of self have been so pure. And I do also think that the times that I've been on retreat, like uh, just a week's Vipassana or a 10 day Vipassana, I've managed to hold on to something much longer than if I'd gone for a weekend's ayahuasca retreat i mean it feels to me that often like the ayahuasca is a slap around the head with a mm. fish and you're like oh my god mm. thank you there was the blockage that i was getting to in my meditation and i thought i was like just so good and now i've seen oh my god no i'm not I'm, i've got much more work to do so i think they work but that's it well. isn't it and now the work's there to do and the work <laughs> is integration yeah exactly yeah, exactly. yeah. They, i think they work well in tandem they're, they're, yes. they complement each other quite well there's yeah, it's it's a more hardcore thing, the the plant medicine. But the reason that I specifically like it is because the narratives that surround it have very often, at their heart, got a lot of nature connection. Mm, more yeah. so than mm. what comes from India, 
I mean, obviously yes. you can bring it in as you have with green Christianity and the whole bunch, you know, everyone's trying to remember, oh my God, yeah, we've got an ecological crisis. Let's relate that to, to spirit. But it's already there embedded in the, the indigenous wisdom. Yeah, it's embedded in the plant itself. It's exactly yeah. what the plant teaches you. Yeah, Every time you have, uh, I'm going to take plant medicine because I, I know I need it. The journey and the lesson is that you are nature. That's it. The connection that we have been lost for mm. far, far, far long. Yeah. And and these take taking us to we are all equal because in nature everyone is so precious. We need from the ants, we need the bees, we need the wolves, we need everyone to survive together. Yeah, I mean I love I love um I mean I always talk to the spirit of the plant before I imbibe it and I always ask it to be gentle and to give me what I need and all mm. of that but you know I'm absolutely treating it as if it's alive and real and and, and there to help which it yeah. almost invariably does yeah, yeah. I love uh, I, I love the what you put it was for me so spot on to put the the guy talking about the left and right hemisphere in the Gilchrist. Because for me, actually, in my beliefs, uh, we are duality. Actually, we um, we have a name, Ometeotu, is a great duality. But in that duality, we're, we're one. So that that was for me so so good to hear because it really bring bring that what we we have lost that male and female, left and right, fear and love. Uh, they are the same. We are all the same, and we need to bring them in somehow together. Speaking about these Western insights and how these lessons learned through these experiences you had, uh, how can this be integrated? Yeah, it's quite a lot, but it has to be a way. <laughs> well, for me, the the for me the I when I was like sitting down to think, okay, with all this that I've learned from my time making these programs with the BBC. How can I best be of service to everyone by making a new project? What what am I trying to say? And um, and it just became really clear to me that there's phases that we have to go through for before anything really can happen. And like I think the first step is awareness, and then I mean, and there's little little other little steps around that. But awareness generally comes before the healing, because mm-hmm. I what I realized was. So many people that I even know in my life, and also I remember my own self, like as a marine and stuff. It's like it's terrifying taking that first step. Mm. We need to fall in love with nature again. We need to feel that empathy. We need to feel, as you said so many times, Marcel. We need to feel. It's about the feeling, but we're never going to have that feeling until we start opening ourselves up to feeling. To, yeah. And many, many people are not even there. Mm. And and so why how do we persuade those people that that is a good journey for them? Because I mean I I've met people I even interviewed famous people in the film I, I won't tell you who they are who would say to me there's no there's no way I'm going to open that door there's just demons down there. It's very clear you saying that we were really struck obviously watching Tribe fifteen years later watching you when you're with the Babongo. And you're saying, and it's like, it's very interesting to see a young, you know, a younger you, and I can relate to it, you know, to my younger self who was watching it, just the fear of opening that door, yeah. the fear of what's inside. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I look at it and you're like, 
well, that wouldn't be a way. I'd, I mean, I'm, you wouldn't look at it that way. I wouldn't look at it that way now. And it's very interesting yeah. to see just just to see that uh, reaction that is quite totally. And I think I I mean I'd already done a number of mushrooms and what have you before doing that, but I was already in a sense playing not playing a part, but like I knew this was going to be deeper and stronger, and this is all about introspection. I wasn't afraid of the. Well, that's not true. There was there was definitely fear. So I'm not saying that that was a, a played out part, but I definitely wanted to emphasize that. And that is a point that I, I, I still see, you know, having come from where I come from in life. I know there's loads of people who are like, don't li-. even the director of the film at the time. is like there's a reason we have a subconscious is to stick it in and li- put the lid on it. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was, the, wow. Director, that was wow. the director of the film. You know, it's like, why do you want to go in there? And like, and this is, I think, a a huge viewpoint for a very, very, very large, I would say the majority of people. And our science doesn't help us. Our narratives don't help us. None of these things are telling us the opposite. And they're like, just keep moving. And you can see it in the way that we live our society. We're always on the run. We don't want to stop still. I mean, this pandemic is, we'll see what the net result is of it. But like for a lot of people, it will be, beautiful because they have a chance to stop and heal and but those who have the tools can do that many many other people who didn't have who don't have those tools will be struggling deeply being stuck inside with people and who knows what problems are going to arise as a result of that because Mm. going on the introspective journey is something that not everyone's done yet But the reason that I wanted to put awareness first was because I needed to give people a reason why they wanted to do that. Why would you, if everyone's telling you, don't go looking inside because it's all demons the whole way down. How can I persuade them that that's not the case? So the best way to persuade them is like, I'm going to go and visit a group of people who've got no leaders, who've got no laws, who've got no shamans or anything like that. And so they're all equals, and yet they're the most peaceful people on the planet. For me, I went into that journey of I am evil. I grow up believing I'm evil because I am grow up Catholic. Yeah. And this is you, you're born as a sinner, which I always feel myself. I said, I, I hear it, but I always felt that's bullshit. <laughs> But it is, it is at the center of how we've created society. Yes, you know, original is. sin is at the heart and Hobbesian philosophies is like, if you don't have strong control in government, we will tear each other apart. Yes. And in some ways, because of all the wounding that we've had from our, from our childhoods, th- there mm. might be some truth in it, but it's not naturally the case. It's here as a group of people and potentially how we always were who have none of, no leaders or central government or anything like that. And I remember Jerome, who's the anthropologist in the film saying, oh, Bruce, these are, by, these, are the fir- these are the most peaceful people on the planet. And I remember saying to him, Jerome, like we're making a film, you can't just throw these sort of lines out there. I need to have, he goes, look, I'm the head of anthropology at UCL. And we've been studying these sorts of people for decades now. And the measure by which we test things like peacefulness, these groups come out by far the most peaceful time and again. They are the most peaceful people and there they are with no leaders, no laws and all. And so they're they're anarchists in that sense. And that suggests that left to our own devices in this natural state, we can actually be really beautiful. 
Yeah. And I thought, well, here's here's something that I can throw into the to the story to interrupt where people are at. It's like, no, we'll they'll all be you know savages in the forest or tearing each other apart. It was just clearly not the case. So I just thought that was the first step. It's like we have to have awareness, and then with awareness, then an understanding of what the healing practices can be, because that's the first thing we have to start in order to build our sense of empathy. Because without empathy, I can make the forest other, I can make people in Afghanistan other, I can, you know, we can have like, you know, a world leader saying there's a like axis of evil over here. It's like, what's an axis of evil for fuck's sake? Then what is that? You're telling me that these people are all born evil? I mean, what the fuck? And we're just allowing you, voting you as president? I mean, what is going on? We, we have to be able to feel the madness of that and go take it all the way down to feel connection to nature. I just recently, I live in Wales and I had the, the wood behind me taken down because of a disease. Uh, and it, it, it pained me, pained my heart so deeply. It's like, and I understand it logically why they had to do it. I mean, because of an agriculture, but, <laughs> but, uh, and control and manipulation. But yeah, it's just, I, I, I have a deep pain. Oh, no. Grieving. Grieving is uh, my current state. I hear you saying, Bruce, that the narrative does, you know, doesn't want to look at the shadow and that's that's very much a top level because obviously our, our deeper narratives you know um and this is a controversial thing as well like you know uh, the mono myth joseph campbell um but the whole of that myth which underpins a lot of our storytelling is about the journey into the underworld into ourselves to integrate our shadow you know despite despite what Kant and saint augustine might have said about you know, trying to trying to separate us from the body and and calling the body sinful is like you've, I mean, Bruce, you've been initiated as a cinema shaman. <laughs> is it, you know, this is, and I, I mean, I and I don't say that lightly. I, you know, I, you know, I can imagine there'd be people who watch that they think that, but actually, Bruce is just off his head. But that you you were initiated as a shaman. You learned their spirit songs, and I, you know, you can see how you see when you see the forest in that you're seeing the forest, you're seeing what they see. And, you know, I, and, and I, I see much of what you're doing now is that, you're, that you found your song. You're using your voice to come back and, and sing the song of the forest to, to the world. You're, you're, you're acting, you know, you're doing what the shaman said. You will come back to our world and sing the songs. What is your connection? And I think this goes back to an earlier question we asked about ambiguous nature of how the BBC left it. You know, what's your relationship with with spirit? Mm. Well, I just want to say thank you, Matt. That was really lovely what you just said there. Warmed my heart. I've not, I've not had anyone notice or say that before. But yes, it's true. And, you know, the thing, the most tragic moment in the film Tawai was where we go and meet the Piraha and you hear that them saying that they receive Kaubage speak to them in the heart and that they... And the Kuubage tells them not to take too much of the trees and, and all this and to listen to him. And then five minutes later, you see them out in the garden where you've got them telling you how the trees are speaking to them, saying, please don't take us. We're like you. We burn too. We're in pain. And in that moment, you're like, OK, is this 
is this the moment that all humans have been through where they have basically transgressed that inner connection and moved into a space where we're taking too much and we're not paying attention and we're basically not listening to the voice. I mean, it, it was so fascinating getting that translation. I had to go through this whole journey of getting that translation. It was so complex, but yeah, there they are telling us, like, you know, the trees are telling us, please, we're like you. Don't cut us down. Don't burn us up. But yet they're still doing it. And here's a group of people really living there. So for me, I mean, I'm a thousand, thousand times worse than that. If you look at, and I'm aware of like what I buy and what the amount of times I fill my car with fuel. And I've seen, I've been to the forest. I've seen the pollution. I've been to the tar sands. I've seen the destruction. I've seen the palm oil. I've seen I, all of it. I mean, not all of it, a tiny bit of it, but enough for any human to be able to absorb. I remember I did a, uh, I did a clown course a few years ago, which was another healing I just did like as many different types of healing as I could. But I did like two month clown academy, which was a very big healing for me. But in it, we had this, um, we had every morning we would do some sort of uh, therapeutic practice. And one time we were doing some, um, some sound therapy and we had this guy come from Holland and he was great. And he got us all doing some stuff. And anyway, we were all in a big circle and we had to jump in the middle if you wanted to sing a song or whatever. And, you know, you always, try and do it because that's where the pain is to to step up and, and anyway so one time I'm jumping in the middle and I'm doing some singing and at the end of the whole session we've got five minutes before lunch and he says Bruce I noticed back you know when we were doing that singing thing and you jumped in and you start, and I saw something in you would you mind repeating that to me I'm like sure man yeah whatever I didn't know what he was talking about so he's there on the piano and he asked me to sing and I'm like la, 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 whatever it was I, I don't even remember but then he he noticed when I got to a note and he was like, ah, he goes, Bruce, can you just sing that? Just that note there. Yeah, that one. And I was like, oh, that. OK. And can you push it a bit harder? I was like, ah, and a bit harder, ah, whatever. Just like pushing into it. And then suddenly out of nowhere, I burst into tears. I got floods of tears pouring down my face. And all I can see is the tar sands of Alberta and the forest destruction in Brazil and all of this, whatever it is, I'm carrying inside me. And he's managed to unlock it through literally just the vibration of through my sound inside. Wow. And it, and I had no, I hadn't been thinking about those things previously. They were just there inside me. And I think that we're all carrying that. I obviously have it in a much more, clear way because it's been so much part of my life but deep down we know what we're doing it's a deep pain i think there's another reason why we're un, uh, we don't like really going there because to truly acknowledge what the cost of our lives is on the planet and our children and their children is to be in deep deep mourning yeah and that's that's what i'm carrying yeah, you know, what I say, I'm currently in grief. Uh, having, I'm 44, and suddenly realizes that every time I was talking with Matt, we women, every time we bleed, we enter into maniac state, and I'm entering into perimenopause. And it was clear to me that every single time I bleed and I enter panic state, these states, it was mother nature 
going into this mourning for, for, for this world that is that I am destroying it every time I put the washing, every time I click a switch. And it's so clear how our power, every single bleed, our power of taking care, not just of our children and our family, but taking care of nature is being diminished. And we have to step and fight for to, to, to put the washing machine and to just continue perpetuating again, again. And that's why it's a lot of this feminism and we is stepping up into your power. It's just, we just need guys, please just join us <laughs> a little bit to, to just sing together because it's what we do yeah is we to just have lunch together or, or or sharing the cooking together you know this uh, i i come from a very large family and my memories of being the most happy with my family is when when we go to the ranch or to the to to the house in the countryside and everyone all of us are cooking together it's it's a massive table all of, and everyone is doing its duty the guys putting the wood fire, uh, the women doing the chopping to make the guacamole. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, and it seems quite balanced. In in every duality has its role in its place. Because yes, uh, yeah, we are unity, but we are an individual, uh, at least because we really live in this material world. Perhaps when we leave the world out in the spirit, we are one. But here we are definite duality. But I want to, for me, this is the most important part to ask. <laughs> and it relates to these. I read, I read an article where you talk about meeting a group of people in Colombia called the Kogi, mm -hmm. uh, who invite you to give up sex, drugs, and alcohol to stop and reflect. You then became celibate for three years, realizing that the sexual drives you had were coming from a needy rather than a wholesome place. This relates in some ways to a deleted scene from Tawai that you talk about it uh, with the Benjeli uh, in the Congo. Uh, the men and women continue to work together to banish these tendencies uh, of the hoarding, competitive, aggressive, aggressive male spirit and to integrate uh, the feminine power so that can we can all live together equal. So can you speak this for for us this seemingly separate point that i made uh, what is a relationship that this male drive of taking um, and this this beautiful ritual that uh the vangeli does uh which i love this ejengi ritual yeah, it yeah, was yeah. It, it blew my mind and i think it blow yours too because in one of your interviews, you say that's the moment when in the 16th chapel, God and... <laughs> but I would love to talk more about this. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was definitely the most profound. It was weird because it doesn't even make it into the film. And you could watch the film and think, where's the female voice? But in some ways in the film, I'm trying to talk to the male to open up so that we can receive this much more powerful message um, from the women that, that you see in the Benjeli clip when you go. You know, the, the, my understanding 
of what happened there as, as, as sort of offered by Jerome and Ingrid Lewis, the anthropologists, is that that Ejengi ritual that you see in the Benjeli clip is their reenactment of that moment when well, the way they describe it is this is the beginnings of life. This is the beginnings of, of society, of humankind. This is how they describe it. And what Jerome thinks is going on is that this is actually the moment when the women come together as a collective and they say together no to the alpha male and invite the other men to come and live with them. And that this could be a memory of our earliest, earliest moment literally as we became homo sapiens you know it's like as we stood upright hips narrowed the women needed to they must have had a reason for wanting to do that yeah whereas previously as the other apes they're quite happy having the genes from the guy who fights everyone else off and he can and that that maybe worked for them before but now as they're suddenly giving birth much more uh, premature because their hips are narrow they have to give these children with huge brains that they have to get out early and they need help so they and these kids are helpless so they have one hand is taken Please. up and so they, they maybe they just maybe it was just that and maybe they just wanted a hand and like here's a bunch of guys who are sitting around doing nothing preening each other fighting this it's like maybe we need to do that and of course the the guy who's who uh there's two people whose theory this is it's um chris knight and camilla power who wrote this amazing book all about ritual blood and menstruation and um, female power. And it's a very powerful book. And they, 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 they suggest that it could have even coincided with some evolutionary shifts in humankind, whereby in order to go through this revolution against the alpha male, that maybe that's why we that women come into ostracism or into season in unison because it's an easier way to say no if everyone is together. If it's just one at a time, the alpha male might be able to overpower. But if it mm. so, it all becomes about this solidarity of the women, yeah. and that being this this moment of uh, revolution. And it really then it got me thinking. It's like wow, you know, but we're in this sort of since agriculture and the breakdown of this story of egalitarianism, we're back now into this almost animalistic space that we we're in before of comp competition, aggression, and masculine power. And like, what can we learn from that moment? It was maybe the only other time in history where we've managed to have a proper revolution that ended up with true equality, because that's what the the hypothesis is these groups now are living genuinely without leaders where everyone is equal so that got me thinking well what are the essences of that moment that were so that we could learn about and you know and once again it came to the, the women they're not trying to fight the guy you know they're not trying to challenge him using the same quality of power that he has their methodology for confronting that power was to use their own power, which is ultimately a withdrawal. It was a stepping away. It was a sex strike. It was a no. Yeah. And not giving him the feeding his energy in any way. Mm -hmm. And then the invitation of the other men to come and join them, provided that those men came to live and left at the door 
not door because they wouldn't have doors, but you know, left behind <laughs> at the threshold the tendencies yeah. towards competition and aggression in the knowledge that humankind can do that because we're one of the few species that has the ability with the prefrontal node to be able to evaluate how we want to act, whether we want to come from our more primal space or whether we want to act differently. And so that I believe is how humankind started living together. So I think that, I think that, that to me was fascinating because it gave me an insight into a type of revolution. But then beyond that, it's like, that's one thing, but then how did those groups maintain that balance? And I think the thing that people often ask me about when I tell this story is like, they're like, so I'm not suggesting that those drives for competition and aggression have gone. They're still there and we all feel them. And, you know, we feel them as men and as women. We can feel that competitive nature. We can, it's like, it's just there. But they found and maintained tools within their society and culture that mitigated against them. And which are those tools? Well, I hear you say masculine as well, Bruce. And it's not, there's forms of the masculine that we have now. And it's the wounded masculine. You know, the archetypes for, for, for the masculine is, you know, the king, the warrior, the magician and the lover. And actually all, our, all of our society lives out at the moment is the wounded king and the wounded warrior, which is fearful, aggressive, um, and actually it puts me in mind of like, there was a talk I heard by a guy, an, an elder called Jack Zimmerman, um, who has written a book called The Park, uh, I think it's The Path of Counsel, and it's about being integrated and, and how our relationship with one another is the way forward. So it's not about dominator culture, it's about being in counsel with one another. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I think there's loads and loads of people grappling with ways that we can bring about better forms of society and better ways of being together. And there's, you know, Mankind Project and all sorts of men's groups that are out there that are, mm. that are trying to heal these wounds and find ways to go forwards. And I mean, there's too much to go into here. What I noticed within those groups that had this, as, as I said at the beginning of our chat, you know, I was so struck by how different they were it was almost like a different paradigm it was like they're so completely at odds with anything i'd seen before this was like equality but one of the most powerful aspects of it was this different embodiment of power between the men and the women but that was one of the tools and you ask marcella what are the tools well i think that the first tool as always is the awareness so the fact that they have the ajengi is a constant reminder of keeping the narrative going. And the Ajengi is a this big phallus. Yeah. So the Ajengi is, <laughs> is essentially a, a sort of a, a, a ritual, ritualized spirit symbol of the alpha male that the men get in front of and hide the stop the women from being attacked by him and, and essentially invite him to flee back into the forest. And I mean, there's layers upon layers of that. There's a uh, I was invited, I was initiated into that ritual. So I went behind the scenes to meet the man, to see the various things, There's all sorts that's going on, which is fascinating. Um, but yeah, so they keep the story alive by having a reenactment of that narrative so that they don't have to relearn the lesson every generation. So let's, you know, and we know that narratives are incredibly powerful, you know, 
narratives are the means by which we can cooperate over vast numbers of people. So that's the big things. Like we know that we're better off when we're equal. And if anyone gets out of hand, then that causes problems. It's a slippery slope. So they are all individually in tune with their own power, men and women, everyone, to call out and say when they see someone showing off or hoarding or trying to think or say or behave more than anyone else. And likewise, if someone is down, they will all try and bring that person up. So they're all constantly in tune with the social dynamic and working to maintain the balance. And that's the main thing. And you know, when we think how we are also, probably as a result of the fact that 95% of our time on the planet, we were equal, we are incredibly aware of this ourselves. We're so alert to our place in society where we are in relation to each other. And I think that came from that, but we're not acting from it. We're just mm -hmm. accepting it. We're just like succumbed to the fact that there's a king and then there's a boss and there's a driving instructor or what, you know, we, so we just sort of like, but the pressure and the problems that come as a result of like accepting that rather than being our full selves, they are all fully themselves able to say whatever they want to anyone at any time in the knowledge that the, that the society is better when they're all equal. I remember someone saying to me, yeah, but they must have elder class that are, that are, you know, have more say and stuff. And I'm like, no, no, this is before even that. I remember I was with Jerome and he said, there was a, there was, because the, the Brangeli are now interacting with some Bantu groups nearby now and who are teasing them for having such strong women and for not having leaders and stuff. And so one guy was like, starting to pretend from within the Benjeli that he was the leader so Jerome arrived one time and the guy goes I'm the boss here and this little kid walks past he goes no you're not you're a complete dick and uh, <laughs> and that would be it you know it doesn't matter who you are your age or it's like everyone's voice is valid and if you're if you're going against this agreement that we have which is that we're all the same then I'm going to call it out so that would be that would be one of the tools i remember also jerome saying that he i get this confused between whether it was me or jerome so i tell this story slightly differently sometimes it was uh, it was let's say it was both uh, <laughs> whether the um the men were on the no i was with the men and they pointed at another guy the other side of the village and they said you see that guy over here he over there he's the best hunter we all know he's the best hunter he he's the one who's the bravest when we go out to get elephant he's got a big wooden stake and he charges in first and we all come in afterwards and like he's the man but a couple of years ago he started showing off that he was the man so obviously we stopped going hunting with him and the women refused to cook his food because we we can't be dealing with that here and so in our society when we have like this meritocracy type of philosophy um, there for them it's mm. completely the opposite it's like there was another guy in the Benjeli there who had an accident when he fell out of a tree and was paralyzed and someone else I think had polio they don't really contribute physically in the same way but they're fed by everyone the equal share equal share equal share and they're fastidious in how they're sharing so that's how they do it they they just have a narrative and a whole bunch of tools and the other biggest tool as I talked about earlier is occasionally the men and the women separate and have their own rituals. And the women might come out, as you'll see in the 
in the Ben Jelly clip on the on the internet, where they come out and they basically come together as a collective and then tease the guys, and they tease the guys, not suggesting that the men are toxic masculine and need to be hated. It's not that at all. It's full of love, but it's also firm. And it's like, you've been a lazy lover, you've been aggressive in the home, you've, whatever it is, and they name it, but they do it as a group. I found that fascinating. Isn't it? Absolutely Isn't it? fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I, poor Matt, I'm, as a Mexican, very, my family is mostly women. And I understood that way of teasing because we are teasers. I mean, and if, I know if I do that with a guy, I know I want to destroy him. Especially if you do it with everyone, who is also his wife, his mum, his daughter, all of his family and all of the rest of the community. And you're all there. And what they do is they will tease them until they start laughing. And they won't yes. stop until, because it's not like we're going to tease you to make you separate and to make you feel bad. We're going to tease you until you get the joke and join in with the rest of us. That to me is like so powerful. And that's what I meant earlier when I was saying there's a different quality of power because they're not trying to, he's been aggressive in the home. We're not going to come and beat you up. We're just going to ridicule you, but we're going to make sure you get the message and we're going to make sure that you, you're going to come back into the group. Yeah. We're not pushing you out. We're, because we, we need you. you. We love you. Yes. We and love that, it. That, I, that I think was, again, Bruce, you seen it. You, like you said with, with the Penang, you could see maybe other people wouldn't have seen that the same way but i think that's why we connected up you looking at how you're you you were living out of your sexual drives how we how you were externalizing it and it wasn't coming from a whole wholesome place when you've done that in a masculine work when you've looked when you've looked at oh actually these are the narratives i've been given as a man in my culture and they're, they're not they're, they're not integrated they're not healthy they're they're, they're manifesting in in all sorts of aggressive unpleasant predatory ways um i think you have to have done that work i think you're right but like i am i am so far from cured oh, because the, the thing is the thing is that they have to their advantage is they have a culture where everyone does it together yeah and i in our world of anonymity i can be in my in my one group and like behaving in a certain way and i can step into another group and whatever comes out comes out without any course for um anything coming back on you and and obviously we don't you know we try, all try and behave as best we can but some of these drives are still there they're still draw strong they're still you know they're, they're within us and they're, they're around us they're the message we get all of the yeah. time aren't they yeah, yeah. and it's very it's, it's yeah i still struggle with all those things to this day and like, and in some ways that's why i'm wanting to create community because i've realized that actually that is the best way for holding us all to account you know it is about being held to account and we've been on this journey for so long of like this sort of deification of freedom and free choice and, and all these sorts of things but that's not what these people are looking for they want they want a collective mindset rather than my individual freedom to do whatever i want whenever I want. they're like no no yeah you're individually fully sovereign but with that freedom, they choose to put the group first. And it's yeah. a fascinating thing. And then the group looks after them and they look after the group and that thing. And if they, if they tarnish that relationship, then the group has some form of, of um, accepted and agreed upon 
uh, holding to account. That feels like a, a good place to kind of feel like we're wrapping up. It feels like you were just beginning to say something about your the possibility of community and egalitarian living. I wonder if there's any way you could maybe, if there's anything you'd like to end on around around that. So, yeah, I mean, I guess where I got to with all of this, there's a lot, and the film just touched on it, was uh, actually, I realized that with all the money in the world and, and, and all the time to be able to make a film, when I was talking about some of these subjects, they were literally going over people's heads. And I was like, why is it that I'm so fixed on this and everyone else seems to think that it's so far away? And I, I realized it's because actually I had experienced it firsthand. Mm. And actually, until you do experience it firsthand, it just feels like, it feels just like a romantic dream. It feels like an impossibility. It's like, how could you even imagine that the world could turn in that direction? And that's basically when I realized that although I absolutely love my life of travel and my life of excitement and variety and monies and privileges, that actually what I needed to do was, was uh, the next step of this journey of sharing was to live it. Um, and that meant trying to put into practice some of these things. So that's kind of where I'm at. It's, um, it's a, a realization that community and landed connectedness and belonging to a place and a people was was the journey that I needed to go on next and then if I can do that then others can from this part of the world can then connect and go ah just like the feeling I had that's real that's possible why don't I do that where I'm from and then just sort of have an inverse virus (laughs) sorry to use that word but uh, a virus for good that could share, that could, that could spread. So that was, uh, that was my thought. But Marcel, I see you want to say something. Yeah, I have to say something that landed in my body. How, how to live that. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're into the path of experiencing because your teaching it will become fully embodied and you're going to have the tools to, to this powerful message that the forest give to you through all these tribes. That it, you will succeed in not for the whole entire world, but in your lifetime, you're gonna you're going to definitely touch many hearts and, and and your seed will grow. And one of the ways is I could see it, I could see, I could feel it from the wisdom of my body, the body, we are egalitarians. Because if you experience your body, we we are on uh, we live in a, in this homeostasis state where the nervous system our body all the time is balancing itself each other, and if the heart goes more than the liver or if any system goes rises up, trying to be the our power, we the whole body collapses. So every time we enter into meditative space into our body feel the body just knowing that we are egalitarians definitely by nature mm. we mm. are we can the, the circulatory system and the respiratory system they can overpower so yeah it's a truly embodied experience uh, that we need to and is and we are nature Mm. we are made of nature 
Thank you very much, Bruce. It's amazing. It's amazing yeah. being in front of, of your lovely presence and your beautiful power of wisdom that you mm. are going, you're sharing. Thank you very much for your Thank service. Thank you both, guys. It's been a real Thank pleasure. Yeah, absolutely, Bruce. Uh, all the best with um, your, your your moves towards your community and your egalitarian experiment. And I uh, hope to speak to you again soon, brother. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, let's do it. Blessings, guys. Blessings. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the episode of the Body Knows podcast. We hope you enjoy it. If you did, then remember to subscribe on your favorite platform. And if you have the time, then leave us a review. It will mean so much for us if you do. We have a favor to ask you too. Please help us spread the word and pass this conversation on to someone you think it would be of value to. Or if you want to share on social media, then remember to tag us so we can see what you have to say. You can follow us at The Body Knows Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. We'll be sharing more material from ourselves and from our guests. In the meantime, we are going to be back every month with a new episode. We hope you can join us then. And remember, listen to your body, because your body knows.